book of Nehemiah. I'm excited about this new series. I've uh, already charted it out throughout the whole book, and I've titled this series, Arise and Build. And it comes from a verse in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18, when they're back in the promised land and Nehemiah is talking to all the people that have come back with him. And he tells them of the hand of, in verse 18 of chapter 2, Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. Arise and build is the name of this series that I'm wanting to uh, begin today. And it really... Some have said that the book of Nehemiah is the greatest handbook on the principles of leadership, and I would agree with them. Actually, when I was in college, the only time I've ever studied this book was in college, and it was in a leadership class. And uh, we did not go into the depth that I'm going to be going into, and we will finish this. I'm not going to belabor this, but you know, there are great tr- principles and treasures of how you should lead. A person should lead in leadership. But just because I say that, I don't want the rest of you to write it off as, you know what, I'm not, I'm not a leader, I'm a follower. Uh, because this book is for you. The message of this book is for you as well. Arise and build. Uh, Jesus Christ, has, He called us to be salt and light. Salt, to pr- be a preservative in this world. Uh, to stand out, to be different, but also to be a light to signal to people who Jesus is, to point them in the right direction of where salvation really comes from. And every one of us are called to be the salt and light of the world. And one person has put defined leadership as influence, and that's exactly what salt and light is. So really, there is someone that every one of us is influencing. And how are we influencing them for Christ? How are we arising and building them up for Christ? Or even pointing them to Christ? There are messages in this book that apply to you as well. Years ago when I did vacation Bible school at a church, they had a skit involved. I'm not a very good actor. I'm just, I'm just not a very good actor. <laughs> you know, what you see is what you get. And so I have a hard time playing parts, but I was part of this skit, and one of the items that you needed for the skit was goo. Where do you get goo from? I asked Crystal. She said, we're going to have to make it. So she made, she made the goo out of cornstarch and water and something else. Uh, anyway, she made this concoction, and when she was done, it was congealed, and it was all slimy and gooey and everything, and you know, we were great. We, you know, we were prepared for the next day. Well, I left it at the church on the kitchen counter, and we came back the next morning to practice the skit with the teenagers that were working with me. And the goo had hardened. It was rock solid. Uh, and so we're frantically, you know, trying to get this goo unhardened, you know. We're adding water to it, trying to stir it up, and it looked like, you know... Look like scrambled eggs and water, you know, just kind of floating around in chunks. You know, we're trying to get this goo all slimy and pliable again. And I, I thought about that incident as I was thinking about this message for today. Um, Nehemiah was just a 
he was an ordinary guy. He wasn't a priest like Ezra. He wasn't some preacher. He wasn't some priest. He wasn't part of a special family in that way. But God used him as a leader because he had a heart that was pliable. He was sensitive to the work of the Lord. And the first principle that I want you to notice uh, as we this, in this first message, basically the whole chapter of Nehemiah, chapter 1, is that Nehemiah had a concern for the work of the Lord. And the tendency in our lives is to become hardened to what God is doing around us. Our hearts become hardened. We ignore what's going on. And Nehemiah did not do that at all. He had, the work of the Lord was very important to him and he was concerned so much with the work of the Lord. It says in verse 11 of this chapter that Nehemiah writes, I was the king's cupbearer. Who, what is a cupbearer? Uh, it was more than a butler, I'll tell you that. He just didn't wait hand and foot on the king, King Artaxerxes I. But in order to be a cupbearer, you had to be handsome, because king's not going to have some ugly looking guy you know, sitting beside him and serving him, right? You had to be handsome. You had to be cultured. You had to know about the Persian culture or the culture of that king. You also had to know the rules of the royal court. You had to know how to speak to the king. Your job was to choose and taste the wine that the king would drink. And so if someone tried to poison him, you would die first. Sounds like a wonderful job. But, I, but actually, because of that position, which was very important for a Jew to be in that position, that was very uncommon. I would liken it to Daniel being in leadership. Or Esther being the queen of King Xerxes. A king before him. And you know, you think about a little guy, a little Jew named Nehemiah. And he's the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes I. He's tasting his wine. He's making sure he doesn't get poisoned. You can kind of imagine that the king trusts him a lot with his life. Because he could, I guess, taste it and not really drink it, right? Say, you're king, and then he croaks. right? But no, he trusted him with his life. The king trusted Nehemiah with his life. And because of that, many times a cupbearer was a close personal advisor to the king. So not only was Nehemiah put in an important position by God, because God moves in the hearts and the ways of kings, he was put in this important position, but he was also put in a position of influence in Persia. And even with all the busyness of palace life, Nehemiah, you'll see, was concerned about the work of God in Jerusalem. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1 says the words or memoirs of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And it came to pass in the month Cheslu, in the 20th year of, and that's the year of King Artaxerxes I reign, as I was in Shushan, or Susa, the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. 
And so here he is so busy with what's going on in the palace that he, he sees his brother, I believe it's his biological brother, Hanani, and he asks, how are the people doing in Jerusalem? The people that have gone back. Uh, how are they doing? How is Jerusalem doing? He's concerned with the work of the Lord. I want to just notice in verses 1-3, through three, uh, the first evidence that you're concerned about the work of the Lord. You know, you might say, oh, well, I'm concerned about the work of the Lord. Well, prove it. Let's look at Nehemiah's life and see the evidence of how he was concerned about the work of the Lord. First of all, he was aware. He lived aware of God's work and what was going on. You know, unfortunately, we get so busy in life with our own schedules, with our own uh, afflictions, with our own wants and desires, our own jobs, that we can kind of get distracted and become ignorant of what God is doing around us, what God is doing in the church. We can get preoccupied with peripheral things and not keep the main thing the main thing. Nehemiah, even though he was an important, influential person in Persia, he still cared about little old Jerusalem back in the province of Judah. He paid attention to what God was doing around him. And how do you do that? Do you pay attention to what God is doing around you? Uh, when you get together and we fellowship like this, you get together and talk about the weather, or you get together and talk about, hey, what, what's God doing in your life? And you don't have to maybe say it like that, but you kind of, you know, you get to a deeper level with people around here than, oh, you know, is your dog sick or, you know, or, you know, how's your grass doing? You know, we can get on those, we can talk about the most menial, you know, really they are so insignificant, these things. But getting on to inquiring about what God is doing in that person's life. How is God answering prayer? Uh, on Wednesday nights, I've been kind of doing that myself, you know, trying to ask about, you know, hey, what, how is God answering prayers in your life? You know, will you give testimony how God's answered a prayer? Maybe how He's taught you something in the Word of God? I know some people just don't like speaking in front of others, but why do I do that? Because I'm concerned about uh, what God's doing in your life. I want to hear. And it also encourages those that are here. So when we fellowship together, talk about what God is doing in your life. Not like, well... God taught me this, you know, I'm just so close to God. But I mean, you know, share answers to prayer. Brag on God. And then when I read like a missionary letter in the service, pay attention to what I read. I know it can be a, I, I wish, honestly, we ha- I could put a picture, you know, of the missionary and, and I could show you what's going on in the ministry with pictures, but it's too much set up and probably too distracting to do that kind of thing. But, I know that when I read that letter, it's probably a challenge for you to pay attention to what God is doing. Especially when I don't read the names correctly. You know? But, uh, you know, I can even distract you in that way. But, you know, the point of doing that is so you know what's going, what God, how God is working on that mission field that you're hopefully giving to in your weekly missions giving. So to report back to you. During the week, are you aware, are you living aware of God working in a soul? You know, do you have a motivation? To do you are you motivated? Do you have a um, a desire to know how God is working? Well, first of all, you got to be aware of what's going on around you. You know, are you aware of you know the spiritual needs of the people in your family? Are you aware of the spiritual needs in the around you and your neighbors or at school that you just start if you just started school this last week or 
are you just clueless and you're just focusing on your own life? Nehemiah was not that way. He was concerned about what God was doing. And we see in verses 1 and 2 that he cared about the progress that was being made in Jerusalem. Just kind of give you a brief history. Uh, the state of Israel was at an all-time low when they were defeated by Nebuchadnezzar and they were taken captive to Babylon. This was the southern kingdom that I'm talking about. The northern kingdom had already been taken away by the Assyrians. But when Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city, he took the city, it was an all-time low. He destroyed the temple. He destroyed the walls. He destroyed the gates. He killed people. He killed the children of the king. I mean, he, he tried to... Uh, it just was ultimate, ultimately humbled. And they spent years, 70 years in captivity. And it wasn't until King Cyrus defeated Babylon that he allowed the people, he made an edict in 538 B.C. that they could return back to their land, which was very typical of his rule. He would do that with the people he conquered. So he did that with the Israelites, and they didn't go back until 536 B.C. And when they got back, they started rebuilding the foundations of the temple. And shortly thereafter, they were forced to stop just within one year later. So they come, I mean, they're a devastated people. They're scattered throughout. Some of them are in Assyria and have married, intermarried there. Some are, uh, are in Babylon. They've intermarried there. Some haven't. And they return back to their homeland. They're trying to rebuild. They're trying to arise and build. They're trying to grow spiritually, quote-unquote. Okay? And they face opposition. And local opposition there gets the king to get them to stop their building in the book of Ezra. And then it's about 20 years after they... Uh, stop building that they actually they start again and they actually complete it. So 20 years after they originally got there, they finally completed the building of the temple because they faced opposition on and off. And isn't that kind of how the spiritual life is? You know, isn't that how our spiritual walk is? That as we're trying to live for God, you know, we might hit some all-time lows. I've experienced those before. You may be in that situation right now where you feel like you're not very close to the Lord. I encourage you to pursue and to seek the Lord and draw close to Him. He says, draw nigh nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you in the book of James chapter 4. And so that promise is still there. But even when you draw close to the Lord, it doesn't mean that your life is simple. That it's without problems. You know, you still get physical sickness. You still have spiritual uh, battles. You still have temptation. You still have... Uh, <coughs> habits from the past that you're dealing with. And so they face this kind of opposition and they finally reach a milestone 20 years after they got back to the land. And then Ezra goes back about 60 years afterwards and they fell back into sin. Ezra goes back, the temple's completed, and he preaches against sin that they had fallen into and there's this great spiritual revival as we end the book of Ezra. And actually, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah were one book in the Hebrew Bible, so it just kind of transitions right into this book. And Nehemiah, when he asks about the state of the nation, okay, the state of the nation, he finds out, he assumes that they're moving upward or moving forward spiritually, but he finds they're not. There's problems that have been created. Verse 3, it says, uh, his brother, brother says, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province of Judah 
are in great affliction and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. The reality was that the people were afraid. They were afflicted. They were depressed. They were anxious because they had no walls. And so they were thinking they could be invaded at any point uh, from the enemy. The place was still ruined and a reproach to God's name. You know, God had built up this great empire under David and Solomon, and it had just dwindled, and it was just a reproach. It was just a shame to the people of, of Judah that were there. And so you can imagine the morale of the people, it just stunk in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah was so burdened about the work of God there. You know, and I think it is commendable that Nehemiah, he wanted, he was willing to know the good and the bad. I've known people that have been involved in the church, and when things go bad, they jettison. But you know what? Someone who is, has a heart for the work of God, that they have a, that they believe that there's a cause that God is trying to accomplish here on the earth, they don't jettison when things get bad. They don't just stick around when things are easy, but they get involved in the work of the Lord and they don't live unaware of what God is doing. Second, in verse 4, it's Nehemiah writes, And it came to pass when I heard these things that I sat down and I just wept. And I mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. My point here is that Nehemiah, he was aware of what was going on. But then also he lived burdened for God's work. There's one thing, there's one thing to just know what's going on in God's work, but there's a whole other matter. If you're really concerned about it, you're going to have a burden for what God is doing. It's going to affect you personally. And that's exactly what it did for Nehemiah. We are in our country seeing a, a, a shift towards, it's been a shift for sometimes towards secularization. And, and away from God, and Christians are being marginalized. And I read in the Sword of the Lord newspaper, which copies are available to you, but I, I got a copy myself, and I came across this article here. It's titled, Big Move to Get Pastors to Run for Office. Um, you know, with the conditions the way they are, apparently a lot of pastors not only are aware about the things that are going on in our country, but there are people that are pushing pastors to run for office uh, if it's God's will. And the article says more than 500 mostly pastors have signed up for special political training offered in Oklahoma, South Carolina, and Louisiana by evangelical political organizer David Lane and his American Renewal Project. uh, This is a quotation from David Lane. Pastors are kicking the tires to determine if God is calling them to run for city council, county commissioner, school board, mayor, or Congress in 2016. It is my hope, uh, and then they quote Ted Cruz, uh, you know, he's a presidential candidate for the Republicans. He said, it is my hope that you will hear God's call on your life to restore American governance to its God-given purpose. And uh, the, the... Author of the article says, when you consider that 27 of the signers of the Declaration of Independence had seminary degrees, the idea that pastors run for political office doesn't seem so far-fetched. I didn't even know that. I thought that was kind of neat. 
But you see here that these pastors are seeing a need. These other people are seeing a need. And they're burdened for it. And it's affecting them personally where they're investing and looking into uh, further training to see if that's what God has for them to do. With Nehemiah, God gave Nehemiah a burden for the work there in Jerusalem. And God does that with each and every spiritual leader. Each and every person who is concerned for the work of God. And what God is doing around them. You're going to be, He's going to give you a burden for that work. And when you see what God is doing, He's going to burden your heart. But many times when we get this burden, we try to escape it. Uh, we get a calling on our life and we try to run from it. I think of Jonah. You know, God called him to Nineveh and it really wasn't a burden on his heart. Uh, really, the whole book of Jonah is how he wrestled with accepting God's call on his life. And he ran the opposite direction. But Nehemiah, he ran straight for what God wanted him to do. And how did it affect him? It says that he sat down and he wept. He shed tears. He shed tears for God's work. And I just, I just wonder about us. Do we shed tears for God's work? Whether in times of joy, when we see people accept Christ, when we see people um, making decisions to um, be more committed to the Lord and serve Him, do we cry over that? Does it affect us emotionally? Or do we kind of stand off and not really get personally involved? Or even when people fall into sin, or they're not living for God, do we get, do we weep in pain, times of pain as well? He mourned. It says that he mourned for God's work. He sorrowed over the opposition that was being uh, hammered against God's work, and then he fasted for God's work. And that word fast doesn't mean just abstaining from food and water. That's usually what it means is to abstain from food and drink, but it's to basically, the whole intent is to take your eyes off this world and focus them entirely and completely on God. And so when God gives you a burden for His work, not only is it going to affect you emotionally and your countenance, you're going to mourn, but also your eyes and what you focus on. You're going to take your eyes off this world and what's so transient and just goes by and is just here for a little time. And you're going to focus on God completely. And you're going to live burdened for God's work. And so, as we see here with Nehemiah, he, it affected him personally. Not only was he aware of what God was doing, but he was also burdened for it. And he, and he personally wept, mourned, and fasted. And are you focused completely on God's work? You know, when we see people that are not living for God, do you shed tears over that kind of thing? Or is it, you know, are you just numb to it? Are you personally involved in that way? Do you, does it affect your countenance? You know, it's okay to be sad when someone in your family is not living for God. You don't have to wear a mask around other Christians. We care about you. We want to pray for you. We're burdened for you. We want to share that burden with you. We want to rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep. But living burden for God's work. And then lastly, in verses 5-11, through is really the largest portion of this chapter, and it is how God led him not only to have a burden, but to pray for God's work. 
to pray for God's work. And how should you pray? Vance Havner said that the church will not get on its feet until it first gets on its knees. I like that that quote. The church will not get on its feet until it first gets on its knees. And we see in verses 5 and 7 that Nehemiah confesses sin. It says, he writes, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, and great the great and terrible God, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that loveth Him and observe His commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive, and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. He confessed the sins, confessed sins to God in prayer. And with a clear view of God, if you look, if you remember verse 5, he says, O God, Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God, the one that keeps his word. When you get a clear view of God, you get a clear view of your sin and how you really stand before God in prayer. And you become ashamed. And you see yourself and you see your own people and your own nation clearly through God's eyes. That word confess is a little different than the word confess in the New Testament because it's a Hebrew word. And it means to throw or cast before God. To confess is to cast or throw before God. And so it's talking about casting your cares of sin before God. Matters of sin. You could cast matters of joy and other things as well, but here it's used in reference to sin. And it says here that he confessed in verse 6, I confess the sins of the children of Israel. Now, this verse doesn't teach that you can get God's forgiveness for our country. You know, like you can you know, get forgiveness through some other means. That's always done on an individual basis, but he casts the sins of his people that he's never met before God. And he brings us before God and he says, you know, God, we have, in the past, we forsook you. I mean, you gave us clear commands of how we were supposed to live before these lost and pagan people. And we totally rebelled against you as a nation. Now, was Nehemiah personally responsible? He really wasn't because I believe that he was born in captivity. I I believe he was born in Babylon. He never had been to Jerusalem in Judah. The, The time frame and everything, he wouldn't have been old enough. But he was born in Babylon. He wasn't personally responsible. But he still brought those sins before God because he knew that seeing God as He really is, His nation and His people were not the people they should be and they should have been. And so He confesses and brings before God the sins of His, of his people. Do you do that? Do we just bellyache about how America has strayed from its Christian heritage, from what God wants? Or do we actually bring those things to God in prayer? The tendency is to just complain and bellyache. Oh man, my vote doesn't really count. It's not really worth much. But you know what? Your prayers are worth more than your vote. You know, And we need to be praying and bringing these sins that 
we hear on the news and that we find out about, we need to bring them to God. And when we do that, God works in our hearts. It's not about God working in their hearts. It's about God working in our hearts. And we see that when Nehemiah brought the sins of the nation before God, that God convicted him of sins in his own life. If you look at verse 6, it says, And I confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned. He, he says, he looks and he says, you know what? I have sinned against you. Both I and my father's house have sinned. You, you see, when you are burdened about the sins in our country and you pray for those, God's going to work in your heart first. He's going to convict you of sin in your own heart first. And we see that with Nehemiah. So that you are experiencing personal revival yourself. And he confesses the sins in his own life and his sins burdened him. Uh, the sins of the nation burdened him with sins in his own life. And then he confessed the sins of his family. And his sins in his own life burdened him with the sins of people that were the closest to him. The point is, is that you need to view sin seriously in prayer. And you can't get God to forgive someone else, but you can pray for the sins of our nation, the sins in your own life, the sins in, your, in the family. And why do you do that? Because you're concerned about God's work. And, about, and, it, and it begins right here with us. We can't ignore the sins around us and in us. We have to cast those before the Lord. And so He brings, those, he brings the, the sins of the nation before God. I don't know. I mean, in church, do we, we don't often pray even for our nation, do we? You know, we have it on our prayer sheet, but even before in church, you know, how often, or even in our own private lives, do we pray for our nation? And for the sins of our nation? Or do we just try to pray and try to isolate those things that are going on? The text here really teaches us that when we pray about those kind of concerns in regards and how it's opposing God's work, God does a reviving and He does a convicting work in us. But then also, He not only confesses sin in prayer, He claims promises to God in prayer. In verses 8 and 9, he writes, remember, he prays, remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, if ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, thou there, uh, though there were of you cast unto the uttermost part of heaven, yet will I gather them from there and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. So here he is referring to promises that were in Deuteronomy. Uh, one promise that I wrote down in my notes was actually in 1 Kings chapter 8, where Solomon prays, When thy people Israel be smitten down before the enemy, because they have sinned against thee, and shall turn again to thee, and confess thy name, and pray, and make supplication unto thee in this house, then hear thou in heaven, and forgive the sin of thy people, Israel, and bring them again unto the land which thou gavest unto their fathers. And so here he, Solomon, is referring back to Deuteronomy, the same passage that Nehemiah is referring back to, this promise in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy that basically if the people transgress, God is going to respond to that with chastisement. But also there is a promise there for forgiveness and for restoration there in Deuteronomy 30 for the nation of Israel. 
Solomon referred to it, and Nehemiah is claiming that promise in this prayer. That's the same kind of thing that we should do as we pray for our nation, as we pray for God's work. We can claim these promises, especially in regards to sin. I hope that when you have sin in your life, that you can claim promises like 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't let the devil deceive you into thinking that, oh, that sin's too bad. You never can be forgiven. But God promises to forgive and to restore you. Then last, commit yourselves to God in prayer. Verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11. Commit yourselves to God in prayer. Verse 10 says, Now these are thy servants and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants, who desire to fear thy name and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, the king, for I was the king's cupbearer. You know, the tendency in prayer, or the tendency in trying to make a decision and know what God's will is, a lot of times we run ahead of God. And that's kind of the tendency, it's kind of uh, in all of us, and it's kind of childish. I know that when our family likes to walk around, Crystal and I kind of walk slower, and we just did this last night, walked around here, and we were visiting and just talking, Crystal and I, and what did the boys want to do? They wanted to race and run ahead. You know, they wanted to be in front of us and run ahead. Well, that's all good on a walk when you're a kid and there's no, uh, and there's no, you know, cars going back and forth. But it's different when you're, when you're talking about God's work. You don't run ahead when you're dealing with God's work. When you do, you're liable to do it wrong. And we see here that Nehemiah, he commits his desires to God. He says there in verse 11 that he says, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to us and to our prayer who desire to fear thy name. And Psalm 37 touches on that same matter. Delight thyself also in the Lord and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. If you're wrestling about what God's will is for your life, you, first of all, must delight yourself also in the Lord and then bring those desires before Him and He will give you the desires of your heart. The way it works, basically, is if you're delighting in the Lord, it means that you're loving the Lord. You're focused on Him. You have sin confessed. You are determined to do His will. And it's kind of like meeting your spouse if you... Married a saved spouse. I know with Crystal it happened this way. It wasn't like we were trying to find each other. But, you know, I was pursuing God's will for my life. She was pursuing God's will for her life. And we just met. And we realized that God wanted us, we loved each other and God wanted us to be married. But that's how it met. We didn't go looking. We didn't go on a dating service. I'm not discrediting that, but we didn't really do that. Our dating service was just pursuing the will of God. She was heading for a mission field. I was heading for ministry, uh, another type of ministry that is. And, and just our paths crossed. And the same is true when we're pursuing God's will. You delight thyself also in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. As you love God, 
and pursuing Him, He's going to change your desires to be His desires. And then you'll do His will. And Nehemiah and these others desired to honor God's name. And then also he committed his circumstances to God. Psalm 37 verse 5 says, Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. The example of Nehemiah here is that he brings this matter before God in verse 11. And he asks God, Prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This man was King Artaxerxes because he was the king's cupbearer. These Persian kings were very temperamental, I would say. They would uh, make, like Darius the first, you know, he quickly made uh, law and almost, and and Daniel was thrown into a lion's den. You know, he was quickly deceived and he made this law. And it says that the law of the Medes and Persians, they can't, it's irrevocable. You can't change it. So these guys would make these laws sometimes on a whim and sometimes, you know, it could be detrimental to many people. And Nehemiah coming before uh, King Artaxerxes I, he didn't know how he was going to respond. You know, coming before these eastern kings of Persia, you might get your head removed if you did it the wrong way or if it was a bad day for them. And so Nehemiah is praying that God would work in the heart of the king and that the king would not only just give him permission to go to Jerusalem, but also you're going to see in chapter 2 that the king also needed to give him the provisions he needed and also the protection that he needed when he went back. The work of the Lord should be very important to every one of us. You don't have to be a pastor You don't have to be a deacon. You don't have to be a trustee for the work of God to be important to you. God's work should be important to each person. When David went as a young shepherd boy to go check on his brothers that were at war with the Philistines, he went to the camp and he saw the landscape and how everything was going on there. And he saw this Philistine giant coming out and mocking Not only just the cowards in Israel's army, but he mocked the name of God. And David saw this, and he stood up and said, will no one fight? I will go fight. And his brother says, oh, you just came to be a spectacle. You came to get all this attention. You didn't come to bring us food and check in on us and our welfare. And so he was criticized for wanting to stand up against them and you know, the other soldiers are kind of mocking him. You know, this little boy is going to go against this huge giant when all these men are afraid. And there in 1 Samuel, let me turn back there. Oh, I didn't keep my place. But anyway, 1 Samuel chapter 17, I believe. I want to just read this to you real quick. 1 Samuel 17. He's being criticized, and, and David says to his brothers, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? And that is the same question I'm asking you today. People are mocking the name of God. The name of God is a reproach to so many in our nation now. And we can can wear blinders. We can stay within the four walls of this church. 
We can isolate ourselves or we can choose like Nehemiah to go and arise and build up the name of the Lord. To take away that reproach to the name of Christ and uh, and to get involved in the work of God. Is there not a cause to echo what David asks? Is there not a cause? It definitely is a cause. And is God's cause your cause today? Are you burdened for the work of God? Are you concerned for Are you aware about what's going on in the hearts and lives of people around you? Do you pray? Are you burdened and do you pray for those people that are lost? Or do you just, oh, I know they're saved and you know they really need to accept Christ. But have you taken that burden on? Are you really concerned? Again, this is not just a mark of true leadership, spiritual leadership, that you be concerned about the work of God. It is an issue and it's essential for each Christian that is living for God. Do you see the cause? And is God's cause your cause? Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank You so much for this rebuke from the first chapter of Nehemiah as we look at his example and his boldness and his courage in a foreign land, never been to this other place, but so burdened for Your work to be completed there. Lord, we want Your work to be completed in our nation. We can complain and bellyache all we want, but Lord, You want us to get involved. You want us to make a difference. You want us to invest in the lives of unsafe people around us. And Lord, we can be determined to try to legislate morality. We can be determined to try to resist immorality around us. But it's not going to last in regards to eternity. There's people that are dying and going to hell today. They need to be saved. And Lord, I just pray that you would, you would just raise up our hearts and help us, Lord, to see the need to build up the name of Christ and to be involved in the work of God. Not that we all are preachers, but we, we should go out and preach the Word of God to people. We should share the Word of God with them and we should be aware of how you're working in their lives and be sensitive to opportunities that you're, going to, that you're giving us that we're just passing up week after week. Help us, Lord, to have spiritual eyes to see. Help us, Lord, to have hearts that are burdened and weep, cry, mourn, and are affected by the ones who are, we know they haven't accepted Christ as their personal Savior. Help us, Lord, to be burdened to such an extent that we pray for them and bring them before You in prayer, confessing our own sins and lack of obedience to You and not coming to them or to You in prayer and judgment of them, but Lord, burden for their souls and that You would work in their hearts, committing our desires and our um, our circumstances to You, Lord, waiting for You to work so and being willing to respond. Lord, I know You're tired of us sitting on the sideline and doing nothing and just ignoring. Help us, Lord, to see Your cause. There is a cause and You want us to be a part of that. Pray that You would Help people to have the courage and the boldness to respond in our time of invitation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.